The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Gracious Father, Son, and Spirit, we come to you right now in great need. We need to hear from you that which we need for life, your word that feeds us. We do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. Without it, we will perish. So feed us this morning, I ask. But in order for that to happen, we have another great need. We have a need for you to open our eyes, to open our ears, that we would be turned away from all of that that's crying out to us from the world all around us, from our, our lives that are, that are pressing in on us, to be turned away from that and to give attention to this and to hear with spiritual ears and to see with spiritual eyes. So would you do that, Lord? By your Spirit, Father, would you turn us, tune us in to receive And for that to happen, we have another need for you to clear away the sin barrier that stands between us. Lord, most of us here know you. You have made us your people. But sin still separates us. Sin still creates a barrier. And so I pray if there are sin, sins in our lives right now that stand between us, would you convict and would you remove that from us right now? Lead your people in repentance and forgiveness and tune us to hear, and then speak your word for life. Father, we are a people beneath you, but remarkably a people joined to you. And so would you speak now through your scriptures in this place to build us? And I pray in particular, Lord, as we work through many difficult things in, in this passage, difficult things to think about. Would you help us to do so without losing sight of this king on the horizon? This king that you would send one day and for us have sent. Help us to see him in this story, to draw near to him and rest in him and worship him. Would you order our lives, Lord, around him for your honor and for the good of us, your people, and for the good of the world in which we live and move. Thank you for your word. Speak now to us, a receptive and cleansed people, I pray. For the glory of Christ and for the good of his church, I ask it in your name. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to Judges chapter 18. We've been, we're continuing through this book of Judges. We're spending just a few weeks here to prepare ourselves for a longer study in First and Second Samuel. And we've been looking through Judges to set us up for that. And what we've seen so far is the, the people of Israel living in the land of Canaan, but in a terrible state. For centuries, hundreds of years... The people of God have lived in an ever-worsening cycle where they, they are in fellowship with God and then they turn away from Him and turn to, towards idolatry, provoking God to anger and discipline. And so God brings in outside enemies to, to press in on His people and, and then they cry out to Him in, in a repentance of a sort. And though God knows it's not really genuine, He raises up a judge which is sort of like a political or military leader. He raises up a judge and through that judge then delivers them back into peace. And everything's great until they turn away again. Even worse than before. And the cycle continues and it goes down and down and down. It gets worse and worse and worse over centuries. We've seen that throughout the whole book. And last week we turned to chapter 17, beginning this final section of the book of Judges. A section of the book that doesn't focus on any one particular judge, but 
tells us some stories about what life was like in this society as it descends. And in particular, the degradation that God shows us here through the writer of the book is used to highlight the need for a king to reign over the people. If you read through those chapters, as I encourage you to, if you read through them, you saw that repeated phrase that I mentioned. It's four times throughout these last chapters in one variation or another. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and so the people did what was right in their own eyes. And one way or another, that's, that's the repeated phrase. And we're supposed to read this, and as I said, there are many things, we'll see them again today, many things that make us say, what on earth? And, and then God says, well, you know, in those days, there was no king in Israel. And so people did whatever they thought was best. And that's what you get. Ah, yes, that's what you get. We need a king. People of God need a king. Israel needed a king, we need a king to rule over us, and as we talked about last week, to lead us into the prospering that God intends for his people, the right kind of prospering. And a king to lead us into that and to shape our hearts and turn us towards him, that he might prosper us with, with intimate relationship with him by faith. We don't just need an earthly king, we need the great king, Jesus We talked about that last week, and that issue of last week with Micah and the issue of worship that was introduced to us, that issue kind of continues on into this chapter, even some of the very same characters are in this chapter, chapter 18, but it moves on to a different focus, one of of social interaction, of how people deal with one another, particularly the people of God dealing with others. So we're going to look at the need for a king particularly in the area of social interactions. So with that, let me read Judges chapter 18. It's a long chapter, but I'm going to read the whole chapter. So follow along with me, Judges chapter 18. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtaol, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, Go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite, and they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What's your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And when they, that is the spies, when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtel, their brothers said to them, What do you report? And they said, Arise and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtel, and went up and encamped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. On this account, that place is called Mahanadan. To this place, to this day, behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jerim. They passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to the brothers, Do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now, therefore, consider what you will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, 
stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, Keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth, and come with us. And be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be priest of the house of one man or to be priest to a tribe and clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. And so they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. And when they had gone a distance from the house of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out, and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you that you come with such a company? And he said, You take my gods that I made and the priest and go away, and what have I left? How then do you ask me, What is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household. And the people of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. The people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Bethrehov. And they rebuilt the city and lived in it. And they named the city Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Judges chapter 18. That's an amazing chapter. Verse 1 begins by putting the whole thing in the context that explains it all. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And also in those days, the tribe of Dan was looking for an inheritance in which it could dwell because no area had fallen to it yet. Now, if you were to read the book of Joshua or even to look at a map in the back of your Bible, a couple things would jump out at you. First of all, you would see that actually there was an area assigned to Dan. When the land was all divvied up, there was a section. If you look at a map, it's about two-thirds of the way down towards the south, towards the west, touching on the Mediterranean. And in fact, the two cities mentioned in verse 2 are in that area. So there was an area given to Dan, and the people of Dan were in it already. Sort of. Because if you look at Joshua chapter 19, which is commenting on the very issue that we're reading about here, Chapter 19 of Joshua mentions that the Danites had suffered some sort of a military setback and had been unable to take the whole area and hold the whole area in which they were supposed to live, which is just like God said was going to happen in Judges chapter 2. We read about this already, where he said, I'm not going to chase out all of the people. I'm not going to cast them all out easily so as to provide a test of you to see if you will trust me or not. This is where you're supposed to live. I've assigned it to you, and I've promised I will go with you into it. Just like I said to Joshua, everywhere you put your foot that I tell you to go, I will give it to you. Trust me, let's go. And Dan said, no. Those people have swords. And they're ready for us. Let's find somewhere else that's easier, that we can handle in our own power. And so they sent out scouts to go look and find some unclaimed land somewhere. And as they wander through the land, they come through the center of Israel, the the hill country of Ephraim, and they come upon our Micah from chapter 17, and somehow they recognize his Levite. 
They figure out what's going on there. They see that the, the false center of worship that Micah had erected there, and they ask him for his blessing, and, and the Levite says that, sure, God's with you. Like they should trust his word. Sure, God's with you, and so they move on, keep going north, until they essentially they go off the map. They go so far north, they go out of the occupied area, way if they're 100 miles north of their homeland. And they come to the city of Laish. And the rest of the chapter sets up a, a, an important contrast for us between Laish and the people of Dan. If, if this was a movie, the soundtrack playing in the background as we meet Laish would be gentle music, pretty music. There would be birds chirping in the background. And we'd see images of women walking children in strollers down sidewalks. Because it is a pleasant place, at peace, unsuspecting, a people who lived in security in the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth, possessing wealth. It says that a couple times. They live in a valley with abundance, with no allies, with no alliances, with no idea what's about to happen to them. God has given them into our hands. They are an unsuspecting people, brothers. Let's go get them, say the people of God. And the scene changes in verse 11 with 600 men of the tribe of Dan armed with weapons of war. It says that three times in this passage, verse 11, 16, and 17, 600 men armed with weapons of war. 600 men armed with weapons of war. And they march on Laish, stopping to rob Micah first. Stop at his house. Four times we are reminded of all the idols there, the ephod, the metal image, the carved image, the household gods, and the, the homemade priest. They stop long enough there at Micah's place to rob him, to tell him, you're going to be our priest and when Micah confronts him, we miss things in the language of the Bible. If, if this was, again, if it was a movie, this is a, this is a confrontation of two armed groups. And the people who are more numerous say, shut your mouth or we're going to kill you. That's what they say. And Micah says, counting, okay. And he goes home. And they go up. Conclusion, verse 27. And we're meant to see this as just heavily slanted. There's this innocent city. And they put it to the sword. And they rename it Dan after themselves. But the little reminder, in case somehow we've forgotten, but it used to be called Laish. And there they set up their false system of worship which they carried with them from Micah's house, as the text notes, as they walked right by Shiloh, where the sanctuary of God is, carrying all this stuff that they just stole, walking right by the sanctuary of God to go slaughter these innocent people because they didn't trust the Lord to give them what he said he was going to give them. And they set up this false center of worship, and it lasted all the way up until God wiped them out. Until the captivity of the land, it says there in verse 30. Because eventually God says, enough. Eventually God brought in Assyria and wiped this whole area clean. That's another story. This story just ends... In case we forget where it started, with chapter 19, verse 1, reminding us, you know, you know, in those days there was no king. And this is what you get. That's the passage. An amazing passage. And I think it teaches us this point, which is what I'm going to work on this morning in two observations. But here's, here's the main point I'm, I'm after this morning. Without 
God's king reigning over us. We are prone to do whatever we can to get whatever we want. Without God's king reigning over us, we are prone to do whatever we can to get whatever we want. I'm going to unpack that in two observations. Here's the first one. And, and I, sh- I should say as, as I start here that I intend, and, and I, I really think that God will, will graciously allow this, I intend for this to be encouraging. Even though the chapter itself is a tragedy. And we will have to talk about that a little bit. We'll have to dip into some things that are way wrong. But we won't stay there, I don't think. So hold with me if you feel like it's it's negative. It'll turn, I hope. Here's the first point. The self-serving use of power begins with a worship disorder. The self-serving use of power begins with a worship disorder. My use of, or perhaps I could say my abuse of, power, my wielding of power to serve myself, your wielding of power to serve yourself, to get what you want from others, to get what I want from others, is, is first of all, most importantly, it is a spiritual problem. It is a worship problem. It is not just an ethics or morality issue. It is that too. But it is most importantly a worship problem, a disordering of what we worship, getting things out of order that we worship. We're worshipers by design. From birth, we are worshipers. And whenever we move the one who is to be worshipped off of that throne, our hearts are quick to fill it with something else that we make first and, and look to and chase. It happens. And to be clear, as I start this, I'm talking about power. And so that you think of it as applying to you, even if you don't think of yourself as a very powerful person, I want to be clear what I mean when I talk about power. Now, in the passage, obviously, we see very raw power of muscle and sword, military power. But power comes in all shapes and sizes. Power can be exercised by the, the use of money. Power can be exercised by how you use your tongue. Even in, in very small social settings, think of something so simple as a group of people that you decide to invite to your house. When you decide... Not to invite so-and-so, and to invite so-and-so, you are using power. You are exercising power to choose. To speak particular words, maybe to insult or to accuse, to hurt with attitude, or, or to in any way manipulate a situation. Whenever you find that you're trying to gain some leverage or to work something, You're exercising power. Now, clearly, there are some people in the world who have more power than others, but every one of us has power. So this is is about all of us, not just big people. It's about all of us. And the point here is that all of us will be tempted to use whatever pieces of power we have to serve ourselves when we get worship out of order. In our passage, the the tribe of Dan, of course, they're one of the tribes of Israel. And so just like Micah and his mother last week, they see themselves very clearly as people who are in relationship to the Lord. Their religious paradigm is we worship Yahweh. Of course. Yet at several points, the text reveals that they don't worship him. Their hearts are far from him. Worship has gotten out of order. They have no living trust in the Lord. And by trust, I mean a genuine heart dependence on Him that is submitted to Him, to His will, to His ways, to His word. 
They would clearly affirm with their mouths, we are the people of God. But when you look down just one notch and look at life and how it's lived and what's trusted, and you realize they are not a people who follows after him. They are not a people who worships him. They face, first, at the very beginning, they face a situation where they have been given a land and told to move into it, just like us with challenges in life. And, and what's set before us is, that's a hard situation. God has called me into it. I don't know how that's going to work out. And the question right at that moment is, will your eyes rise to Him, look to Him and say, but God, I trust you. Help me. You are the one that I focus on. Or say, no, I'm going to seek another path. Something that I can handle. Obviously, we see which way they go. Turning away from him, literally, and going a hundred miles in the opposite direction. And along the way, they meet Micah's Levite, and they interact with him. What are we supposed to take from that? That they would even interact with this whole concocted religious setup. The idol worship, and the homemade ephod, and the homemade Levite. That they would walk right past the sanctuary of God at Shiloh. What are we supposed to take from that? That the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, sits very lightly on them. Very lightly. That among that people there is no regard for the Lord. They do not tremble at His word. They do not regard Him as holy and set apart from them and to be approached very carefully through the means that He has proscribed. They are quite willing to wipe away everything that He has said and to turn everything that He says to serve their own purposes. Now clearly, as we look at the chapter, we are also meant to see that this this brazen theft of Micah and the wiping out of the innocent village are evil deeds. They are atrocities. And that's clearly to be seen. They lead to destruction of people and, and the destruction of themselves. In fact, it, it's, it is quite wrong. But in a very real way, all of that is just fruit naturally born on its native vine. A life that has set God aside. That's the real problem in the passage. The wiping out of Laish is a result. Brazen theft from Micah is a result. Worship disorder is the root problem. Men and women, when God is not our deepest, highest, greatest concern, when He is not the one towards whom we are oriented, the one who commands the attention of our hearts, the one who is our highest affection, then something else is, and that something else will lead you to destruction. That's the issue. Now, what's the usefulness in knowing that? Not, this is the part where where I'm trying to turn this, not, I, I'm not just telling you that. I'm not just pulling that out of here to say, and you are like that too, and to, to hit you with that in some way. The purpose of identifying this and understanding the issue is for diagnosis. Not condemnation, diagnosis. Consider this. Take a brother and a sister, a couple of young kids, a brother and a sister, in argument with each other. 
Any brothers or sisters here ever argue with each other? Any parents have any kids who ever argue with each other? Common. Now, I'm going to try to say this in a way that if you're 10, 12, 14, you can understand what I'm saying. We understand this point here, but if not, maybe mom and dad will have to sort this out. So mom and dad, keep paying attention. And little tip, this applies to you too. But I'm going to try to say it in a way that a 10, 12, 14-year-old can understand. Brother or sister arguing in front of the TV about which show is going to be turned on and watched. Brother calls sister a name. Sister shoves brother down, rustles the remote away from him. Brother takes a swing at her. Common stuff. What's the problem there? What's the problem? Okay, you, sister, brother, what's the problem? Is the problem that your brother called you a name? Is the problem that your sister shoved you and grabbed the remote out of your hand? Or is the problem that he tried to hit you and hurt you? Sure, those are all problems. That's all sin, of course. But that's not the biggest problem. What's the biggest problem? Think diagnosis here. What's the biggest problem? Those are two kids using what power they have to get what they want. What's the biggest problem? Okay, 10, 12, 14-year-old, your biggest problem is that right in front of the TV, right in that moment... The most important, biggest, best, most wonderful thing you can imagine. The biggest, best, most wonderful thing you want to be close to, to be loved by, is not God. You're not thinking about God at all in that moment. Now, if we were to call time out and say, do you love God? You'd probably say yes. But in that moment, the truth is being told. He is far back here somewhere. And the biggest, best, most important thing you want is your TV show. That's what you think will make you happiest in here. And your brother is in the way of that. So you fight him. I'm talking to 10, 12, 14, 40, 50 year olds. Because that's all of us. That's all of us. What what causes the fights and the quarrels among us, what causes the the me picking up whatever whatever power I have and using it against you is that I want something. I want something and you won't give it to me. And I'm all right here on this plane and God is somewhere else. Worship disorder has happened. That's why we're fighting. And so for diagnosis' sake, I should not just clamp down on the... now. On the sofa in front of the TV, you need to make peace, for sure. But we should not just clamp down on the behaviors and say, speak more kindly, don't hit your sister, and leave it at that. We haven't touched the real problem. We absolutely, absolutely need to to address and fix the abuse of power in the world. But that will only come as we address the worship disorder that is at the root of it. And for that, we need the intervention of God. We must be a people convinced that every self-serving use of power, every abuse of power, whether it be small words spoken or men with swords, whatever it is, at whatever level, it's coming from somewhere. It's coming from a worship disordering. That must be addressed. And that's what God has moved to do graciously. Which is what takes me to the second point. Second observation is this. 
God's provided king can curb our abuse of power. God's provided king can curb our abuse of power. Limit it, one day even totally stop it. Verse 1 makes this point by reminding us of the larger context. Verse 1 says, essentially, we're going to spend another 30 verses talking about a problem, abuse of power that comes from worship disorder. And just so you know where that comes from, let me remind you there's no king. The presence of a king would fix this. How? Well, in a couple of ways. First, if they had a king, so just right on the, on the surface, if you will, if, if they had a king, there would be an authority to settle and enforce the proper system of worship that God has said. King's going to build a temple. King's going to stamp out all this idolatrous worship. The king is going to make sure that the people live where they're supposed to live and that they have the power to take and to hold that land. He's going to defend the whole nation. He's going to defend the weak and the powerless. So, in a very real way, I don't want to breeze over the fact that one of the points being made in the book of Judges is that they need a new human political system. They need a new way of running a country. They need a king. However, they need more than that. Because if we just think, if, if we just think a king is going to fix this and it'll never happen again, we're living a pipe dream. Kings, governors, rulers, police, judges, whatever, they all are human, subject to the very same problem that we're talking about here. And all of us will, will be woefully disappointed if we think, you know, what we just have to do is elect the right party into power, establish the right form of government. We need to get a, a worldwide system that will make war go away. Pipe dream. Never going to happen. Because the real problem is one in here. It's an issue of the heart. It's about worship. And so we need a king who can address not just law out here, but can address and change what I worship inside here. And that's the kind of king that God has provided in Jesus. You know where this is going. It's going to Jesus, of course. But I have to plead with you, people of God. I have to plead with you. you. You knew last month where this was going. I told you this is all pointing towards Jesus. I mean, you're Christians, you know that. You knew at the beginning of the sermon where this is going. It's going to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, you know where this is going. We don't live this. Because we still have fights and quarrels among us. 10, 12, 14, 40 year olds are still fighting in front of the TV. Still. Even though you've always known the answer. So I plead with you not to chastise you, but to plead with you that you would take it in and trust it. What's at the root of this, of this power struggle and all the wickedness that it creates is that we have gotten God out of order and Jesus steps in to fix that. How? By wooing you back to Him and lifting up this Christ lift up Himself in front of you and say, I am the one by whom you can know a Father who is good to you. There is... Nothing new to say. And yet, I want to be quick to remind you, there is a single God who made all things that are. With vast power, He speaks into existence everything. Power. Untold power. And he stoops to speak to you and to interact with you. And in your moment of greatest need, wielded all of his power to bless you. And not to get from you. To bless you. 
He did so by sending His Son to the earth. It was prayed earlier. We are, I say this often, we are far too familiar with this for it to strike us as it should. You have no business interacting with this God in any other way other than as an object of His wrath. And yet He sent to the earth a Savior, God the Son, through whom all things were made. He displays His power by commanding the waves and commanding demons, and they obey Him. And yet, humble and silent like a sheep led to slaughter, He goes to the cross for people like you, who in your moments of trial use every ounce of power you have to get what you want. I'm in your shoes too. I'm not setting myself apart from you, but I want to make it clear, that's who you are. In your moment of trial, your first and second, probably third, fourth, fifth reaction is to work it so that you can protect yourself and provide for yourself. And you'll grab any weapon at hand. Your words, your money, your relationships. Some of us, physical weapons. Need I talk about what marriages are really like? What they're really like? Right there. People convinced that I must get what I need and I will use everything that I have at my disposal to get it. Need I talk about how parents actually treat kids? How kids respond to each other and to parents. It is wrong. And it reveals us. It reveals what we really think. But Christian, Christian, do you real... Please realize that there is one God who has declared Himself for you. A forgiver of even all of that. A deep and passionate lover of even you. This God has acted to join you to Himself, to adopt you into His family, not to crush you under His curse. He puts out in front of you this evidence and says, Will you look at me? This is who I am, a trustworthy one. He lays it out in front of you that you might be one to Him and made a worshiper of Him. It is not just information. It is indeed information. But it is truth that might set you free if you would look on it and believe it. When your brother wants to watch a different TV show or your spouse insults you. There is a God who is worthy of worship and remarkably more than just declaring that Christian, His work in you, His provision of His word for you, His drawing near to you in His spirit is for the purpose of convincing you of it. Not just telling you you see, there's, there's, there's two ways that the information could work. It could work in the way that I use it, and it could work in the way that God uses it. All I can do with the information is declare it. Put it in front of you. And God does that. But remarkably, Christian, God does more for you. 
He is even more gracious to you in that he declares the information to you and then plants within you a change agent. He's working to change you. Now, he, in, a, in a remarkable way, this sovereign one, this sovereign one can be turned off the Bible will talk about grieving the Holy Spirit. So in, in a remarkable way, the one who is sovereign can say to you, I take a step back and I let you go. How exactly does all that work? I don't know. But it's there. And so I ask you, I put this point in front of you because this is a point you need to, you need to hear and embrace and act upon. There is truth out here declared. There is a change agent living in you, pleading with you, pleading with you, pleading with you. Will you turn him off and march a hundred miles in the opposite direction for something you can handle in your own power? Or will you say, help? Will you turn him off or will you turn to him and say, Show me, convince me, persuade me. I believe, help my unbelief. In other words, ask Him to reorder your worship. I do not want to leave us just with the facts stated. I want to leave you with a plea, with, with, with a burden. Uh, with a burden that is light, but with a burden. You cannot just receive this passively there is a a, pas- a passive aspect to it and there is an active aspect to it that you must believe and take every other thought captive and bring it back over here and believe again and ask God to help you with your unbelief Without it, we are left to be people who will do whatever we can to get whatever we think we need. And it leads to destruction. But God has provided a king to forgive you of your sin and to draw you, to change you, to extend His reign into you But you must, in a way that's hard for me to understand, let him. You must yield. Please, yield. Can you imagine a life? Can you imagine a life where husbands and wives... Do not wield whatever power they have against one another, but instead wield their power for one another in love of God and love of spouse. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine families like that and churches like that? It can be. Trust Him. There is a king who is able to curb your self-use of power. And he will do that by lifting up in your eyes, in your heart, himself as the one to be worshipped. You must embrace it. Please do. Please do. Let me pray. Father, I ask you to take the facts and by your Spirit move them deeply into our hearts. We need the reign of this King. We need to stop resisting Him. There is so much, Lord, I I think there is so much fear and uncertainty in us. Trust is like that. To a degree, it's a step into the unknown, and we are prone to resist that.
So I pray, Spirit of God, I don't know where every person is in this room, but you do, and where there are people hung up in a state of fear, knowing where they should trust you, but afraid to do so, speak even right now to them, I am trustworthy. Let go. Speak that that to them, Lord, or, or whatever you know best, you are God. Where there are some here in the room, maybe some who have not yet trusted you, who resist you, who resist you in a, in a firm belief that you are not good, open their eyes to the fact that the path that we walk apart from you leads to destruction. Open their eyes to the fact that you have acted in power to do good to your, to your creation, to make it right, and then to remake it right in Christ. You are a good God. Open their eyes to that fact. Lord, would you make us a church that is utterly different than these Danites who worship you with their mouths but whose hearts are far from you? Make us a people different than that, I ask. Make me... Make each individual here people different than that, and then make us a people different than that. Be honored in us, I ask, Lord. Father, Son, and Spirit, I pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.